Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon I delivered on the book of Acts. I hope you enjoy. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Acts. We're going to start in chapter 4, and we're going to end up later on maybe in chapter 20, so we're going to do quite a bit, uh, looking at suffering and persecution in the church. And one of the questions I want to ask really is, uh, as we look at this, is why do people persecute uh, religious beliefs? Why, why are those who have religious beliefs persecuted and suffering? You may not be aware, but about 80% of the people that are suffering for religious persecution in the world are Christians. So religious persecution largely is the persecution of Christians. In the book of Acts, as you open up to chapter 4, page 772 or something like that in the Pew Bibles, in the third chapter, of the, book, the book of Acts begins with Jesus rising from the dead, telling his disciples, I'm going to send you out to the nations. Jesus ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes and falls upon the disciples. And now the disciples in Acts chapter 2 are, are empowered to proclaim the gospel. And they begin in chapter 2 in Jerusalem. And thousands become converts. About 3,000 are con- uh, converted from Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 3, a man who was uh, lame from birth, and for 40 years he laid at the temple gates, and Peter and John healed the man. And the people are looking at, at him going, how did you do this? And Peter and John explain, look, it's not because of our own power, but it's because of Christ <coughs> and the dynamic work of Jesus Christ in us. So Acts chapter 4, verse 4 then mentioned that many who heard the message believed, and the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Within a few weeks, within a few months, the church has grown from 120 to well over 5,000. Now you might think, well, that's that's great, that's exciting, but all of a sudden you begin to realize, if you start thinking about it, the logistic problems that have to come about when your church goes from 120 to 5,000. All of a sudden, you know, what are we going to do about child care? What are we going to do about the Sunday school class? What are we going to do about this? And and, and problems arise. But in Acts 4, verse 3, the disciples, Peter and John, were arrested. And one of the reasons why is because I think one of the reasons for religious persecution is because the authorities and those around feel threatened. They feel threatened. Acts chapter 4, verse 5 then picks it up and says this, The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By, by what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness showed to a man who was lame, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders reject, that you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing that they could say. So the disciples are released. And as, and as they're released, what do they do? Well, they go on and they go out preaching some more. And the more they preach, the more converts there are. 
And the more converts there are, the more people within Jerusalem and Judea that are coming to faith in Christ, the more the authorities feel it's a problem. They feel threatened. So they arrested them again. They put them in prison again. Acts chapter 5. However, in the middle of the night, we're told in Acts chapter 5, an angel lets them out of prison. So here they are in prison. In the middle of the night, an angel lets them out. They go out through a door. And the next day, they're in the temple courts preaching about Jesus again. The authorities gather together and go, what are we going to do about Peter and John, whom they think are in prison? And they're like, uh, actually, they're not in prison. They're over there preaching, and now they're in big trouble. So if you have your Bibles, Acts 5, we'll turn to verse 27. Acts 5, verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Supreme Court, uh, to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles uh, replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. Verse 30, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. But God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to, uh, to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put him to death. Now the story goes on that a man named Gamaliel. Gamaliel is the, uh, we know from second century documents, perhaps the most famous rabbi of the first century. And he enters into the scene. And he says, you know, I don't think you guys should do anything about this. Gamaliel is a good Pharisee. And the Pharisees basically believed that if God wants to bless something, he's going to bless it. And if God wants to curse something, he's going to curse it. So don't get involved. So the authorities then, skip down to verse 40, it says that Gamaliel's speech persuaded the, the, the authorities. And so they called the apostles in, and they had them flogged. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, the court, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. In the face of persecution, in the face of opposition, the authorities have threatened them, imprisoned them, and beaten them. But they were rejoicing because they have been found worthy to suffer disgrace for the sake of the name. Now we'll go to Acts chapter 2. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 12. Why do people persecute religions? Well, another reason why I think is to to gain power. Either to gain power or to maintain power. In Acts chapter 12, we're going to meet a man named Herod. This Herod is Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. And Herod Agrippa was a, a, a kind of a palace brat. Uh, actually raised in Rome for his own protection and, uh, and, and thrown into power uh, over in Jerusalem and Judea. And he actually began gaining more and more and more power uh, uh, and almost had as much control as his grandfather, Herod the Great. And if you know about Herod the Great, he's the, st- the man that we hear about every year at Christmas time who has all the, the babies in Bethlehem slaughtered. Well, Herod Agrippa wanted to gain power, and one of the things that he wanted to do was he wanted to be received by the Jews as a Jewish king, the same thing his grandfather had wanted. And you're thinking, Herod's Roman. Actually, Herod Agrippa and Herod the Great are 
are Idumean. Idumea is a region south of Jerusalem. And the Idumeans were kind of Jewish. They weren't really Jewish. I mean, everybody knew that you're not really Jewish. But about 100 years earlier, the Jews had forced all the Idumeans to be circumcised. And it was, we're going to make you Jewish. And so the Idumeans were Jewish by default. So here's Herod Agrippa. He's like, I'm kind of Jewish. Maybe they'll receive me as a Jewish king. How can I gain power and gain control over this region as a Jewish king? So here's what happens. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod, and it's Herod Agrippa, arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, one of the twelve apostles, put to death with the sword, which means he's beheaded. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. He's gaining power. He wants to be a Jewish king, and the Jews are applauding him because he had one of the apostles killed. Oh, that's that worked. Okay, cool. Hey, let's get Peter also. Peter's imprisoned and is going to be killed the next morning. And just like in chapter 4 and 5, an angel lets Peter out of prison. And Peter escapes. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. We read this passage a few weeks ago. It says this. About Peter, when this had dawned on him when he, uh, that he was free, he went to the house of Mary, Acts 12, verse 12, uh, Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! Verse 15, you're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But, they kept, but Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. And Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, this is James, the brother of Jesus now, because James, the brother of John, was killed. Tell James and the other brothers and the sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. You've got to read what's going on here. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. And Luke is a medical doctor. And one of the things we notice from the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, both written by Luke, is the immense detail. Luke is extremely... And that's kind of a good thing you want to have a doctor that's, that, that likes to pay attention to details, right? Uh, um, so he's extremely detailed. He, extre he, he researches everything carefully. He knows this, and he knows this, and he knows this, and he knows this. But notice something that Luke doesn't know. Where Peter went. All he says is, he went to another, pl another place. I'm not sure where he went. Peter is afraid for his life. He escapes prison. Oh, this is so great. No, no, it might be great, but you guys better be quiet. Because if they find out that I've escaped prison, this time they're going to kill me. They just killed James. This isn't a game any longer. I'm rejoicing that I've been suffering, but if I rejoice right now, if we rejoice too loud, I'm dead. Tell James, the brother of Jesus, who's now the leader of the church in Jerusalem, because I'm leaving. And he goes to another place. Sometimes they persecute Christians and persecute people because they're a threat or they feel threatened. Sometimes they persecute people because they want to gain power. Sometimes they persecute people because their economy has been threatened. 
their economics, their way of life. Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, Paul uh, and Silas are traveling around the Mediterranean world. They've made their way to Greece and the city of Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, verse 16, it tells us this. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, and the we tells us that Luke is with them, so it's Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke who are present. That's the we. We were going to the place of prayer. We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept their practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now we'll stop for a moment. Paul and Silas are Jews. And you can see how it's a derisive term, right? Derogatory way. These men are Jews, and look at the trouble they're causing. They have no idea, however, that Paul and Silas are actually Roman citizens as well. You see, it's not expected that if you're a Jewish that you're also a Roman citizen, but Paul and Silas were both Roman citizens. Citizenship is not something to come, across, to come upon easily. Uh, you can get citizenship a number of ways. One, you could buy it. It's extremely expensive. You can do uh, something noble, uh, an extremely expensive endeavor for the emperor or somebody in power, and they might give you the idea, give you citizenship. You can be born a citizen if your parents are citizens. You could get citizenship if your city, like the city of Philippi, which actually was a colony in the Roman Empire, uh, Philippi had sided with Rome during one of the wars. And when Rome won the war, Philippi was made a Roman colony. And the benefit of being a Roman colony is that every citizen of Philippi is a citizen of Rome. So citizenship is something, it's a privilege. It gives you tax benefits, and it gives you other benefits. For example, later on in the book of Acts, Paul is going to have his case appealed to Caesar. The right of every Roman citizen, if you don't like the, what a lower court rules, you can appeal to Caesar. It's the right of every Roman citizen. You have certain protections and certain legal, legal protections. One of which is that you cannot be beaten without a trial. You see, in Rome, they can arrest you and beat you all they want. But if you're a Roman citizen, they cannot do so without a trial and a conviction. Paul and Silas are Jews, and no one asks if they're Roman citizens. And then they're stripped naked to bring more greater shame, and beaten. Now, why Paul didn't go, ah, oh, sorry, you can't do that, I'm a citizen. Before they beat him, we don't know. But they beat him. They fasten their feet in the stocks, which are bars which keep your legs uh, apart, which basically makes it so you can't relax. And when you're sitting in a prison and you're bloodied and beaten and all the pains from all the, lict uh, they're called uh, lictor's rods, policeman's rods, they, they've caned you, uh, and you're in all that pain, and then your legs are unable to relax, and as a result of that, your muscles begin to spasm, you are in intense pain. 
Acts, 20, Acts 16, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prisons were shaken. At once, all the prisoners' doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. The jailer, by the way, is not in trouble for being asleep. You're like, what do you mean he woke up? It, it, it doesn't matter. His job as the jailer is simply to make sure that I present you in the morning for trial. You're in a prison. The doors are locked. You're shackled together. You're not going anywhere. He can sleep all he wants. Or once there's an earthquake and the doors are opened up, his assumption is everybody has fled. And because everybody has fled, I, as a Roman soldier, a, 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 a guard, am not going to be able to present them in the morning for trial. And because I can't present them for mor- in the morning for trial, my job is to commit suicide. Verse 28. Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We were all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Why Paul and Silas did not tell everyone that they're Roman citizens and allowed themselves to be beaten, we do not know. But one of the things that we do know is this. Paul and Silas, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their agony, are singing songs in the middle of the night. Perhaps that's the... We don't really know what happened, but perhaps that's the reason why everyone's still there. I mean, if you think about it, when the chains are loosened, you're going to leave. Why do they stay? Why didn't they go? I suspect, we don't know this, I suspect it's because Paul said stay here. And because Paul and Silas have been beaten so severely and yet they're singing songs, we're going to listen to these guys. The jailer shows up in the door and begins to commit suicide and perhaps maybe the moonlight or something like that. Paul sees his silhouette in the, in, in the doorway as the light's coming through from the outside and he sees the man's about to kill himself and says, hey, no, stop, we're all here. And the jailer stops and says, what must I do to be saved? Believe you and your household. Paul and Silas were in prison because they were a threat to the economy in Philippi. They cast a demon out of a girl who was fortune-telling and making people money. Why do, we, why do Christians get persecuted? Why do people get persecuted? They're threatened. They feel threatened because they want to gain or maintain power. And maybe a third reason is because they're economically a problem. What does this mean for us today? Let me give you several thoughts. Number one, the suffering, the idea of the suffering church is redundant. Redundant means to say the same thing. The suffering church is a redundancy. The church by its very nature is called to suffer. Mark read uh, John 15 verses 18 through 20 earlier. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Jesus, this is the words of Jesus. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. And there are hundreds of verses like this that we can read throughout the New Testament. The essence of being a follower of Jesus is suffering. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. So the second point is this. Suffering is the lot of the Christian life, or the lot of God's people. 
It's simply the way it is. This, now, there may be exceptions, and there may be moments historically uh, where certain cultures or certain communities are, 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 are exempt from suffering, but ultimately, suffering is the lot of the Christian life. Philippians 1, verse 29, Paul says, To the church in Philippi, he writes, For it has been granted to you, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. You're like, well, I, don't, I like the first part, but I'm not sure I like the second part. Uh, thanks for letting me you know, be granted to, to believe, but do I have to have the suffering also? And the answer is yes. And the third point is to steal a song from, uh, the line from Michael W. Smith's song, the song, This is How Love Wins. This is how love wins. I've mentioned this a few times, I believe, before uh, to you, but I, I do seminars around the country at various times on the book of Revelation, um, and uh, I'll often you know, do some introductory things on the book of Revelation and kind of set a little bit of context, and then I'll make the statement, um, and, and that is, the book of Revelation is a love story. And, I'll, and I'll, you know, people probably think, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. How could he be an expert on the book of Revelation? It's not a love story. It's about violence and, and, and plagues and wrath and boils and, 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 and evil. It, it, it's, it's not a love story. And the book of Revelation is a love story, folks. For after all, think about it. The Bible is a love story. From Genesis through Revelation, the Bible is a love story about how God loved his people. As we look at the stations of the cross on, on uh, the, the Thursday night before Easter, uh, what we're going to see is how Jesus is on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He loves us. Even in the midst of his own suffering, his answer is love. So as the Bible says love story, so also the book of Revelation is a love story. What happens with the plagues and the boils and the wrath is the people do not repent. It's really clear. The wrath of God does not bring repentance. Revelation 9, verses 20 through 21, 21 and 22. How do the people repent? When God's people sacrificially lay down their lives for the nations, the people repent. It's a love story about how God's people lay down their lives for the sake of the nations, and that leads to the repentance of the nations. This is, this is true historically, by the way, also. The history of the church is a history of God's people suffering, and the result of God's people suffering is the conversion of the nations. I've referred to this before, but a great church father named Tertullian around the year 200. Tertullian wrote a letter to the emperor of Rome. And he said, look, why are you persecuting? He's a well-educated man. He's, he has a, a, a voice of the emperor. He's like, I'm, I, you know, why are you persecuting us, he says. We're good people. We pay taxes. We obey your laws. We love our neighbors. We help people out. We work hard. We are the kind of people you want in your empire. Why are you killing us? And then Tertullian made the famous statement, he says, and the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. He tells the emperor, every time you spill our blood, you're planting more seeds. It's through the blood of the church that more people become Christians. This is true, by the way, historically. I was speaking to an African-American community not long ago, and I was, we were looking at the Gospels and the suffering of, the, of God's people. And I, and I said, I said something that you understand well, and that is when people are oppressed unjustly and they suffer well for it, they gain sympathy. That the way to endure suffering is to do it well. And the result is you gain sympathy. 
And as a result, the loving, faithful, sacrificial witness of God's people results in faith. The world might use power, military, fear, oppression, and wealth, but Jesus uses love. And that's what we're called to do. And the nature of love is sacrificial. Love lays down its life for one another and for the other. Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy continue on uh, traveling along uh, through the Mediterranean world. Uh, after Acts chapter 16, they traveled over to Philippi and then on to Thessalonica, then down to Corinth, and then they went back to, uh, to Antioch. And shortly thereafter, uh, they go on a, on a third journey where they, where they retrace their steps, visiting all the churches in modern-day Turkey and all the churches in modern-day Greece. And Paul is now going to sail his way to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20. He's going to sail to Jerusalem. His goal is to head to Rome and then off into the west to Spain. He wants to, to, to evangelize the entire Mediterranean world. So on his way back to Jerusalem, before he heads to Rome, he stops in the city of Ephesus. Now, in the book of Acts, Ephesus was the center of Paul's ministry. Paul had spent, at this point in time, had spent more time in Ephesus than in any city in his, in, uh, of his entire missionary journeys. The church in Ephesus was special to him. Not only was it special, but very likely, pastors and leaders from Colossae and Laodicea and Smyrna all came down to Ephesus to meet Paul as he got off the boat. He's only going to spend a day or two there in Ephesus, and then he's going to go on to Jerusalem. And Acts chapter 20 records Paul's sermon, his speech to the elders or leaders in the churches in Ephesus and around the area. Acts chapter 20, verse 22, I'll begin with. Paul says, Now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none among you, uh, none of you, uh, 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 among whom I have, I, am, I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. What he means by that is I've been faithful in preaching the gospel to all of you, but I'm leaving now. Verse 27, verse 27, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The word overseer means, de, uh, means bishop or elder or ruler. He's speaking to pastors. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock even from among your own number, will arise and distort the truth. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to, to draw away disciples after them. Prison and hardship are facing me, Paul says. I've finished the task that God's given to me, and now I'm asking you to keep watch. And here's the reason why. Because savage wolves are going to come in. He's going to come in. They're going to come into your churches, into your congregations, into your community. From among your own men, Paul says, men will distort the truth. And I suspect that this might be the worst form of persecution that the church felt and faces. When persecution and suffering comes from, from the inside. Uh, if you read the New Testament in, in the letters of Paul, from Romans through uh, 2 Timothy and Philemon, you, you have these letters of Paul, 13 letters of Paul. In almost every single one of these letters, and basically every single one of these letters, there are problems and issues within the church. 
False teachers and false prophets and false believers and people complaining about this and groaning and, and are causing problems and heartaches and headaches for Paul. I suspect that that was worse for Paul than being beaten by the Romans. Paul, I think, says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll bring it up on the screen. Paul says, I have worked much harder. I have been in prison more frequently. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and have toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I think the suffering within the church was the worst that Paul had to face. I'll tell you a brief story. Uh, in the year 2010, I was having a woe was me moment. You've all had them, so don't go there. Uh, I was teaching in a school in Nigeria uh, at a seminary there, and um, I was just thinking, you know, hey, great, I've earned a PhD, but I don't know, it's not, you know, my, my mentor still knows more than I do. I'm never going to be as great as him. And, you know, what am I going to do here? What am I going to do there? And, you know, God, what do you, ha- you know, what, what, what do you have for me? And I'm walking on the road, and some of you might know that uh, uh, um, I've been involved since about 2008 or so uh, with being a voice uh, to, to uh, especially to the church, uh, for the, in, in regards to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, being a voice for peace, an advocate for peace. If you're not aware, um, what happens so often in the church is that people either go way on the left side and they're, they're so pro-Palestine that they're anti-Israel, or they go so far on the right side that they're so pro-Israel uh, uh, that they're anti-Palestine. And the result is that we have a conflict. And the conflict, the way both sides are doing it is, is actually trying to advocate for one side over opposed to another, and you're not actually helping anything. If you want to bring peace in any conflict, you have to bring peace that actually benefits both sides. Because if you provide peace for the Palestinians but not for Israel, then you create another conflict. If you provide peace for the Israel but not for the Palestinians, you just create another conflict. You, you need to find a lasting solution that recognizes the humanity of all people, the human dignity of all people, and, and the peace and prosperity of all people involved. And so I felt called back in 2008, my background and studies and everything else, to, to, to be a voice and help, un, help bring awareness to the church, what's going on, and how we can be advocates for peace in the midst of this conflict. So I'm walking on, this, on, on, on the road in, in Nigeria, uh, the path from the school uh, to, to the, the house that I was staying in on the same campus. And as I'm walking on, on the road, literally the heavens parted. And it, it, you know how you, you have those images from many of you of what, when Jesus was baptized, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit comes out, you know, God speaks from a cloud, the heaven parts, there's a ray of sunlight coming down, and the Holy Spirit descends, and there's a big voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, you know, right? That's how God speaks, right? This is my beloved, yeah, right? All right. Um, it, it was the same moment. I didn't actually hear an audible voice. But I saw the heavens part, and God spoke to me, and he said, Rob, I've called you to be a voice to the church on this issue. I immediately said, Lord, send me to Nineveh. And what I meant by that was this. You see, in the Old Testament, the Ninevites were the Assyrians. 
And the Assyrian Empire had come in in 720 and, and just slaughtered the people of the northern tribes of Israel. They slaughtered them. They raped their women. They, they abused the, uh, others. They enslaved others. And they brutally slaughtered everybody else. And then hauled the rest that were away into captivity. Shortly thereafter, you know the story, some of you, right? There's a man named Jonah. And Jonah's called to go be a witness to the Ninevites. And Jonah's like, no way! They don't deserve the gospel. They're evil. I am not going to them. And so Jonah gets on a ship and sails for Spain, the opposite direction of Nineveh. Well, in the sense that Jonah didn't want to go preach to Nineveh, I felt God calling me at that moment and affirming a call for me in that, as I'm having this woe is me moment. And God says, Rob, I've called you to be a voice to the church. And I thought, don't send me to the church. Send me to the nations. Because here's the reason why. Prophets, you see, when you go to the nations and they repent, oh, that's cool. Right on. Welcome. But when the nations don't repent, it's like, well, what did you, what did you expect? They're not, they're not, they're not going to repent. They're, they're, they're pagans. They're not going to believe. It, it's to be expected. When the nations, you know, throw stones at you, it's, hey, that's what, that's what happens. When you're in Rome and you preach to Romans, they're going to crucify you. But Lord, if you send me to be a voice of the church, these are my brothers and sisters. What happens if they don't listen? I thought it would be more painful to receive abuse from the Christian community than from the pagan community. So the moment the Lord said, Rob, I've called you to be a voice to the, to the church in this issue, I said, Lord, send me to Nineveh. And the, the Lord literally, within two seconds, the entire, I'm about 25 years old, maybe, or maybe a little older than that, my entire life flashed before my eyes. In two seconds, the Lord showed me exactly why I was trained, the one I was trained with. I raised you this way. I gave you this training. I gave you this education. I gave you this experience so that you can be a voice. And that's why I've written a couple books that I've written and speaking at a few of the conferences that I've spoken at. But I suspect from my own experiences that when you suffer at the hands of the church, it's worse. Now, the question becomes this. What's our response to this? And let me just uh, summarize this briefly. Number one, prayer. We need to pray for those who are suffering. We've discussed the issue of suffering a few times, and I think one of the questions that we have to grapple with in the Western church is, why are we not suffering? The, 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 throughout the New Testament, it, it's, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. So why are we not suffering? Well, one of the things I can say about that is this. We must at least be praying for those who are suffering. Just because suffering is, might not be my lot or your lot doesn't mean that we should not be praying for those who, whose lot it is. Even Jesus prayed, Father, take this cup from me. We pray for ourselves that if we do have suffering, if it does come our way, that we can endure, we can overcome. I was on a trip in 2010 with a group of students that I had taken over to um, the Holy Land, Israel. This is a picture of Caesarea. This is Caesarea, uh, the, the, the remains of Caesarea. Caesarea was the capital of the Roman uh, uh, jurisdiction of Jerusalem and Judea. The capital was in Caesarea, and it was right on the, right on the um, Mediterranean Sea. Uh, this is the Hippodrome where they raced the horses, and uh, uh, Herod the Great had made this an incredible location. Uh, right here uh, is the remains of Herod's palace. 
what you can't see in this picture is that he actually had a freshwater swimming, swimming pool built into the Mediterranean Sea. So if you go there, you can actually you can see the outline, outline of it. This is where Herod's palace is. Well, the story goes on, by the way, in Acts 20. Paul goes to Jerusalem. He tells the church in Ephesus, I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Well, what happens to him is he's arrested in Jerusalem. And he spends two years in Caesarea, in Herod's palace, in prison, right there. So as we're walking through the ruins, I grabbed one of the students that I've been mentoring for a while. And I sat down with him. We sat there on a ledge. And I just sat, I said, you know, I said, Paul spent two years in one of these rooms right here, imprisoned, because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus. I said, what are you going to do if you get arrested? How are you going to respond? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Or are we going to deny it? It was a powerful moment, a powerful opportunity. Secondly, I think we need to be prepared to embrace suffering for Christ's sake. We need to be prepared to embrace suffering for Christ's sake. Acts 5.41, I find one of the most incredible statements. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Wow. They rejoiced. Thirdly, we must be prepared to discern false teaching and or corruption in the church. You see, one of the reasons why there's persecution is because of economic uh, uh, implications. You're upsetting the economy. You're making it difficult. And, and Paul tells the church in, in Ephesus and the, pastor, the pastors in Ephesus, watch out because savage wolves will come in among you and bring corruption and destruction. False teaching in the church usually attempts to eliminate suffering, usually promises us peace and prosperity. So we can pray. We can be prepared. We can be discerning. And certainly I'm out of time. But we also need to stop and evaluate. What are we doing to advocate for those who are suffering? What are we doing to help those who are suffering? See, sometimes we have a sermon like this, and we're like, well, we're not suffering, so let's just pray for those who are, and we kind of get off easy. I've said before that I think the fact that we in the West have such privilege in our country, the freedoms that we have to practice our religion and to do what we do, not just so that we can enjoy it, but so that we can leverage those freedoms, those voices, and those opportunities for the sake of those who are suffering. And obviously I don't have time to go into the dialogue of my work with Israel, Palestine, and the Christians in the Middle East, but that's the whole point. The fact that I've, had past, I've sat in Bethlehem with pastors sitting there, and, I, and, I, and I've, I asked pastors, numerous of them, and one of them in particular, and I said, what can we do? What can I go home and say to help you? And his answer to me was, just tell them we exist. Tell them we're here. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.